Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Tuesday, July the 14th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to send me a note personally, Mike Silva at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Welcome in, everybody. A couple of days later than normal. Wanted to see things transpire at summer camp and uh, have an old friend joining us in just a little bit. Opportunity to catch up with Rich Catino, 98.7 ESPN. Rich has been spending some time out at City Field for summer camp. See what Rich thinks about the team. Uh, I find it, and I'll get to that in a minute, a little bit hard to evaluate through intra-squad games. Uh, how would the experiences of covering uh, the Mets from a social distance standpoint and a pandemic standpoint? A lot of changes over at City Field. I know it's a, a big challenge for the media. We knew it would be 
you know, hearing some stories and talking to some people, I think it's going to be a little bit harder than we even thought. But they're getting through it, and uh, we do have baseball, and we have baseball in just under two weeks. Uh, opening day 2.0 will begin, and actually, they're the uh, Met Yankee, uh, we'll call the Mayor's Trophy Games that are coming up this week, and so we'll get our first chance to actually see empty stadiums and what baseball in 2020 will look like, but there will be a season, and and I'll get to kind of my thoughts about this season because I've been thinking a lot about it. What you're not going to hear from me here, and I know that you know you guys get mad at me when I talk about the virus and what have you, I hear enough about that, but I am not going to preface every opinion with if there's a season. I'm really tired. I've got to tell you, there's a lot of things I'm tired about. Thankfully, the media got over you know, talking about the players like they're five years old at T-Ball, about how they have to spread out and all the other stupid things they talk about. But um, I am not going to preface every single statement I make where, hey, if there's a season. Look, there may not be tomorrow for any of us. So I don't say, well, I'll be here next week if I'm here. There's absolutely no reason to do that. So you already got my promise there. Uh, as far as the 2020 season, I've been struggling with how to view this. Now, again, I continue to tell you, I'm not not going to be into the season. I keep saying it'll be hard, and it will be. And there's already a lot of things that people aren't doing. No uh, fantasy baseball league that I'm a part of. That's already been canceled. It's not coming back this year because most people aren't into a 60-game season. And, and I think there is some fear that if you start that there could be a stop or, you know, what happens if one of your players is uh, knocked out because of the virus, you're out pretty much a third of the season at that point, whatever. So there's a lot of things that are that are different from a normal baseball season, and we won't go through the same ebb and flow that a marathon brings out. But we will get into games, I believe. There will be some fun moments, and there'll be stories, and there'll be things to talk about on this show. With that said... um. I'm not quite sure that this is anything more than just a tournament. And the media will spend the season fear-mongering about the virus and the you know the season being canceled. So they're going to they're going to ruin it for us. Every single moment they could ruin it for us, they're going to try to ruin it for us. I'm going to try not to, but they're going to try to ruin it for us. They will also delegitimize any record or result. This is why I'm going to tell you where it's bad. But there's ways that you can make this season feel good. Um, the only thing that will be relevant in this season in the eyes of the media, both local and national, and mark my words on this, is that the Yankees or the Dodgers win. Especially the Yankees. For the Yankees, it'll be payback for sign stealing. It'll make everything right. For the Yankees, it's saving the, the country during a difficult time. Saving the city during a difficult time. Just look back to 2001. There were some people who were legitimately angry that the Yankees didn't win uh, after 9-11 because that would have been, you know, would have healed the city. It wouldn't have done anything. I was a, I'm was a Mets fan. The Yankees winning in 2001 didn't change a darn thing about 9-11 for me. It was a nice story and everything, but it didn't change anything, and I know that it probably didn't change anything for people who were impacted negatively for that too, other than being a nice story. So all that narrative that'll come out—that's silliness. It's not going to make. It's not going to change anybody that lost a job, that's suffering, that's concerned about their health. The Yankees winning won't do that. Okay, let's just get that out there. The Yankees have been crowned champions since 2018. They've been crowned champions in the media every year since then, every month since then. 
So we know that's the garbage and the nonsense that we're going to face with. And we know everything that every other team, especially the Mets do, will be delegitimatized, will be made fun of, will be mocked or somehow viewed as less than, uh, you know, uh, normal. But I will tell you what you can do. I am not, and, and I think Mike Vaccaro actually in the post had the best perspective on how to look at the season. He went back and he looked at uh, the second half of the 81 strike. So this is not even a season. And I, and I mean this. Whatever happens this season is a half of a half. It's, it's not going to feel like 2015 pennant. It's not going to feel like the 2000 pennant. It certainly won't feel if they win like 1969 or even 73 or certainly 86. It's going to feel different. And I think it's going to be fun. It'll be a nice little mental bubble gum to get you through. But similar to how Mike pointed out in 1981 that the Mets were a couple of games out, a bad Mets team in the in the back end of those horrible 1977 irrelevant years up until the early 80s uh, when you know they became a winning team in the mid-80s. Um, that Mets team was a couple of games out, so they could have actually stuck into the playoffs. Imagine that. That would be interesting. That would be weird uh, that you know a bad Mets team gets hot for you know 55 games. Like any team in baseball can and makes it into the playoffs. So that would have been a fun story. I don't know how it would have been viewed if the Mets went anywhere, but certainly even if the Mets made the playoffs that season and, and, and got knocked out, which they probably would have in the, uh, in the division series, it would have been looked at for what it is. It was something kooky. But I look at this and I look at this season as important in the sense where the Mets built something that seemed to be changing in the second half of last year. They had a team that was close. They had a team that was starting to uh, gel. Uh, they have a very interesting, good, young core of offensive players. Guys like Alonzo and McNeil and J.D. Davis and Dom Smith and Rosario and Nemo and, and Conforto. I mean, these are a very talented, very interesting blend of power and on base and, 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 and average and guys that can really go up and down the lineup push that lineup in a way that we haven't seen in, in a long time uh, in a Mets offensive team. You know, maybe since 2006, you know, we're talking about that. So uh, to build on that is important. You know, to see if they have to commit, and is Marcus Stroman the right complement to uh, Jacob deGrom? That's important because you're going to have to make decisions about uh, Noah Syndergaard coming up in the near future. You've heard so many good things about Steven Matz. Steven Matz is a guy that could be a top-of-the-rotation guy, could pitch like a number five or worse, most days fall somewhere in between. Can he be more consistent? Can he at least give you number three type of performance, and can he hug more of the top of the rotation? Can we see what Kevin Smith, David Peterson, or any other of the young pitchers that need to be six, seven, eight, Walker Lockett, guys that need to kind of fill in as you have that rotation that needs to go 8, 9, 10 deep. You may not need that in a 60-game season, 8, 9, 10 deep, but you certainly probably got to go 6 or 7. Uh, and, and the bullpen, you know, there are guys that, uh, you know, you're looking to see if they can bounce back, you know, especially Edwin Diaz. Can Edwin Diaz bounce back and be the closer that demanded giving up a top prospect for when he was under control, still relatively cheap, in a game that requires dominance in the ninth inning that people forget about. And of course, don't forget, there's the manager. No manager in the history of baseball 
probably has been through a ride like Luis Rojas. Interviewing in October, not getting the job, pretty much settling into a secondary coaching role, and then in this whole whirlwind since New Year, not only getting the job because of a crazy situation with Carlos Beltran, but starting to get his footing on a team with about two weeks before the season was about to start, and then the season gets pulled out from under him because of a pandemic. I mean, who else could say that that's what the start of their managerial career has been? But there's a lot of positives that you've heard about with Rojas, and you're really hoping, and I'm hoping, what you could start to see from this 60-game season is Rojas build a foundation of being that manager that they had when Davey Johnson was here for a number of years or what Minnesota had with a Tom Kelly or Ron Gardenhire. The Mets have have not had a good manager since Bobby Valentine. And Bobby was the kind of manager where you really couldn't expect him to be a long-lasting guy because he was a burnout guy. He was a guy that... um, you know, couldn't really get along and play nice in the sandbox with his bosses. So guys like that can't be around 10, 15 years. Can Rojas be the guy that's able to do the things that are necessary to stay employed in this town? Obviously win, and sometimes that is not all in his control, but can he manage up, especially with a new ownership group coming in? Can he manage the players? Can he handle players that some of which are older than him or his contemporaries? Can he manage the bullpen? Are we going to see how he does that? You know, it's a little bit different maybe in a short season, in a sprint season, but can he do that? Because this team really could use stability, and I think that's where it gets to the other thing to look for, and the other thing that you could get out of this season is Brody Van Wagenen. He's finally getting uh, applauded by the media, SNY's Andy Martino, for something that has really nothing to do with building a team or what he was hired to do here which is creating a safe and clean and socially distant, there's that word again, environment. And I I was amazing how Brody's been here two years almost, and the first real glowing article about his work is from Andy Martino about how he's handling the pandemic. Now, if that's what he has to do to win over the media, so be it. You know what? Stranger things have won people over in this town. But I do know I see a guy that talked about being player first and didn't care about service time and put Pete Alonzo into the lineup day one, uh, knowing that that would impact them financially down the road. Uh, I know he knows how to recruit. You saw that with Batances. So that with Rick Porcello. Those are guys that probably financially, especially we know what Porcello, could have got a better deal somewhere else. But he was able to recruit and bring them to the Mets when they needed him. He was able to go out and get some talented guys from the Red Sox organization. He was able to start to think out of the box and build an analytics department. He's navigating an impossible ownership situation. Uh, A lot of unknown of the future. And you have a lot of people in this town who don't like him for whatever reason. Probably because he's a former agent. Probably because he's not playing favorites with them. Probably because they had better access with Sandy Alderson. It's probably the case. Um, And they already want him to be gone and and get somebody new when a new owner comes in because, well, the new owner is going to want their own people. Well, here's a little newsflash for those in the media who a lot of times don't understand business. If you are a good business person, and whether it's Steve Cohen or the A-Rod, J-Rod group or the guys down in Philly or whoever comes in and buys this team, if they're anything worth their salt other than their checkbook, which is ultimately what 
the fans want. They don't care who. Listen, the fans don't. For all those fans who have principles, as long as that owner has uh, a checkbook, they're not going to care about their background. It's funny. All the principal people don't care about insider trading when Steve Cohen has $10 billion, $14 billion, whatever how much he's worth dollars to spend. But, you know, we know the phoniness that goes on in this business and in this world. Anyway, um, if that owner, other than the checkbook, which is important, of course, is worth their salt, they'll come in and they'll assess the situation. And I believe, other than maybe putting their own stamp on certain things, they will like what they see with Brody Van Wagenen. And if they are not that person, if they do the different thing that uh, many in the media have been calling for, they just upset the apple cart and just blow it up because it's theirs, um, I think you're going to be getting some of the same dysfunction and disappointment that you've gotten in the past, just with a different name, a different checkbook. Um, and that's not what this team needs. This team needs someone that could take, I think, a good situation and infuse cash into it and maybe put their own color commentary and a little stamp on it, but in a way where it's nuanced in, not a way where it's shoved in day one. And I think Brody Van Wagen is going to be part of that. And I think those of the media that don't want to see him around will be disappointed. And I think you're seeing with a new era of players really needing to be the center of attention where a player-centric GM uh, you know, is important. You've seen the Knicks do that. Of course, the Lakers did that with Rob Palinka. You know, this is a new kind of uh, you know wave of executives, and I think down the road you're going to see more of this because it's a copycat. Sports is a copycat sport. You know, sports, all sports are copycat. Leagues are copycat. And I think it'll be looked at much differently as time goes on. And then, of course, one of the big uh, names that I think uh, we need to look at in this 60-game season uh, who could be a key component that really could bring this offense and, and man a very important position is Ahmed Rosario, who... Everybody and I was laughed at on Twitter just last week by our good friend Matt Eholt, who used to work for Yahoo. I don't know if he's working for Newsday now. I don't know where Matt is. Matt's a good guy. Sometimes he's a little misguided with how he looks at the Mets. I think he's got a little bit of an axe to grind for a variety of reasons, but that's that's his deal. doesn't make him a bad person. Uh, Ahmed Rosario, when you look at runs created, when you look at wins above replacement, when you look at all advanced metrics in the second half of last year, was a top 10 shortstop in baseball and better than the guy across town that everybody gushes over, Gleyber Torres, better than Corey Sager. So there's a guy that has a lot to build on, and there's a guy that I'm looking for. You know, I've heard Matt's as being a key, of course, and everyone talks about Conforto, and he's coming up for free agency. But I think Rosario, because you got Jimenez pushing him, because Jimenez could become a key piece to be able to maybe either uh, get something else for them to build this team, you know, maybe part of a deal, or maybe you put him at second base or something like that. Maybe he shows his value somehow where else. I think Rosario needs to solidify that position for himself. There's a lot of shortstops coming up through the system, young guys, you know, guys with some talent. But Rosario can make that a moot point by just solidifying the position. And remember, he was in some cases, depending on the publication, was ranked as higher than Gleyber Torres or the number one prospect of all of baseball just two, three years ago when he came up in 2017. It's not too long ago. But these are things I look for when it comes to this pandemic season. But I will say this. Yes, it's not going to be the same. It's not going to be special, no matter what happens. Division, World Series. But winning is important. And the Mets need to continue 
to use these opportunities, whatever this season is, 60 games, 20 games, 100 games, simulated games, um, they need to use this as a platform to continue to build towards the future. That's what I look for in 2020. My juices will start to get going. I'm sure we'll get into it. But I promise you, it's all about building the team and seeing how individuals perform. And I'm hoping that you could even get good information from the performances that you have within the scope of this crazy sprint. Because really the eyes towards 2021 and beyond and building a team that in a normal 162-game season, which we will have, I believe, next year, can compete, win, and put a sustainable winning product on the field with a new ownership group next year that can infuse cash into this team and hopefully build on what Brody Van Wagen and with Brody, what he's been able to do over the last couple of years, moving this team away from what I believe a little bit of a chaotic and somewhat sleepy, overrated era that uh, was part of what I believe Sandy Alderson uh, over oversaw. And, and not all of that was his fault, but um, that's another story for another day. So anyway... Let's take a quick break. Let's hear what Rich Catino has to say. Uh, Rich Catino, 98.7 ESPN. He's been out at City Field. He's a good friend of the show. We haven't talked to him in a long time. Wanted to get the take from uh, City Field live from the front line. Well, from the eye in the sky in the press box. What his thoughts are on summer camp and the 2020 Mets, who are just a little under two weeks away from the 2020 2.0 season starting and we'll see what uh, this 60-game sprint brings. So we'll be back with more and Rich Catino right after this. Matt Harvey was a polarizing force during his time with the Mets. Jared Diamond, national baseball writer for the Wall Street Journal, shared his experience covering the Dark Knight on the Talking Mets podcast. Well, covering him in 2013 was absolutely remarkable. It was so incredible. And I think like, like anyone else who saw him that year, you thought you were looking at, you know, the next Nolan Ryan, a guy that was going to be around for a long time and be a perennial all-star and, and establish himself as one of the best pitchers in baseball, the best pitchers of his generation. So it just was, it makes me sad looking back what happened to him. And now that doesn't mean that it wasn't his fault. He did a lot of things wrong. He made a lot of mistakes. And I have no doubt that he would acknowledge that uh, now looking back. Uh, this was a tragedy that was certainly self-imposed in many ways with some bad decision-making uh, by Matt Harvey, but he also had a lot of pressure put on him by the media, by fans. Uh, it's just sort of a sad story, and it's a shame that he will never be the player he could have been, the player perhaps he had a chance to be, and it's just another one of those baseball stories, those sort of what-could-have-been stories. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. We're back, and joining me is our old friend, 9870SPN. You guys know him on Twitter, at Catino9, Rich Catino. And uh, we're less than two weeks away from the baseball season. I figured we'll look under the hood, check in, see what's going on over at City Field. Summer camp. Did you ever think I would be saying that? Summer camp. Rich, welcome in. Well, ready or not is the old saying. Here we come. And uh, in less than two weeks, the 2020 baseball season will start. Uh, I like to say will start because I'm not going to preface everything by saying if there's a season because I don't know if if there'll be a tomorrow. I'm going to take the optimistic approach. So here we are, Rich. So are you ready to rock and roll here on the 2020 Mets? I think so. Um, 
one of the things that you realize and everyone's realized with this pandemic is the things we take for granted that we miss so much um, could be just, you know, sitting, having lunch with friends. It could be, you know, seeing your girlfriend more frequently. It could be the beach. It could be the sun. It could be the sunrises and sunsets that we take for granted. And I think sports and baseball is on that list as well. So I'll, I'm glad that I'm back at least watching players pitch to each other and hit the ball and run after the ball. And um, I missed it immensely, um, Mike, and I'm not embarrassed to say that that when baseball gets in your soul at the age of six years old and you're able to be fortunate to work in the business and to cover it, it's never going to leave your soul. And that's the way I feel about it. I agree, Rich. And uh, I was talking in the open, how will this season feel? And I've been struggling with this for a while because never in my wildest dreams, even as recently as late April, early May, did I think that the season would be something less than 1981, less than 1994. And look, I'll probably get into this thing. I'll probably, if the Mets are in the playoffs, get into it. But I'm having a hard time saying to myself that anything that is achieved this year, not that it's not important. Winning is important, and I think it's important for this Mets team under this GM with potentially a new ownership group coming in to win and play well in a way to continue to set themselves up for 2021 and beyond. But even if the Mets will win a championship, I'm not sure it's going to be as special as 2015. It's certainly not going to be as special as uh, championship seasons like 86 and, and um, you know, 69. It'll be fun. It'll be nice. Uh, it'll be debated about, about its legitimacy. It'll make for some good radio. And, and I'm sure you and I will talk about it, but, it just is not going to feel the same, and I'm having trouble with that. So I'm curious. Give me your thoughts. Well, you know, I, I really think that, you know, I would have loved to have seen at least half a season in one game schedule. I would have loved to see in a perfect world. But we're not living in a perfect world. And, and, and why I think this is legitimate is everyone knows the rules going in, and everyone's operating under the same rules. And, you know, it's not like uh, all of a sudden, you know, you're playing poker in a casino and halfway through the night, someone gets a million extra dollars they could spend. Everyone knows how long the season's going to be. Everyone knows the constraints. Everyone knows the, the unexpected things that could happen with this pandemic and how it can affect the team. We're seeing how it's affecting the Atlanta Braves right as we speak, to just give us one example. But everyone has the same rules going in. So to me, that makes it legitimate. If, you know, the Mets are playing 60 games and the Washington Nationals are playing 45 games, then no, it wouldn't be fair to the Washington Nationals. What would they have done in those 15 games extra that the Mets play? But everyone's playing 60 games. Everyone's playing the same amount of games pretty much against teams in their division and then teams in the other division. I know there's some people saying, well, the Mets are going to play the Yankees six times and, and, you know, they're the only team in the East got to play them six times. It's that way every year with the Mets and Yankees. So that's an argument you want to – you can even have a 162-game season. My thing is it's legitimate for everyone. It's going to be a season. And I guess people that say it's not a season, I say to them, how did they feel about the 1981 NFL season that was shortened because of a work stoppage and a labor, a labor movement? 
And did they feel that, you know, that jet run at the end of the year in the playoffs didn't matter? Now, we all know it got ruined by Don Shuler not having a tarp on the field. But my point is, did it, did it take anything away from that destruction they did of the Bengals or going in and beating the number one seed, the Raiders, on the road? No, I, I don't think it did. I think, I think Jet fans remember that with you know, a smile on their face. And the legitimacy of the season is there. If the baseball season in 1981 had a split season and we still look at the Dodgers as a world championship team and remember in that World Series, Yankees won the first two games, the Dodgers won the next four games. They exactly pulled a reverse on what the Yankees did to them three years earlier in the World Series. I don't think anyone looks at that and says, well, the Dodgers haven't won a World Series in more years than since 81. They have a world championship in 81 and, and they earned it. My point on the whole thing, though, is that everyone has to just realize life is different now. And yes, 2021 hopefully will be a full 162-game season, but this is a 60-game season. It's a sprint. Enjoy it. Immerse yourself in it. Baseball's back, and the good thing about it is everyone's got the same shot here, and no one's got an advantage over anyone else. And that's why I think I look at it as legitimate. I wonder, and by the way, if you guys want to see uh, some new work by Rich, he's on a website called The New York Extra, thenyextra.com. Check it out. What will be interesting to see when it comes to uh, this season is we've been so mired in teams. Uh, there's really no middle ground. Either you're one of the top eight to ten teams competing or everybody else says, you know, let me punt this and build for the future. And a lot of times teams six, seven, eight, nine, ten in that top ten get criticized for not being with the other twenty teams and rebuilding. We've talked about this with the Mets, but with a sprint, um, everybody, like you said, has a chance. You know, when sixty games in on any baseball season, you're looking at that being around Memorial Day a little after on a normal baseball season. You, nobody's really out of it. You know, we we've talked about the trade deadline should have been pushed to August fifteenth in some years because of the second wild card. Uh, it'd be interesting to see uh, from a Mets perspective, if, you know, I think it's going to take about 35 wins to win the division. Uh, if they're, if they're struggling a little bit, will they sell players off? Will, will teams buy players uh, to compete and win? You know, especially a guy like Marcus Stroman, who's a free agent. If the Mets are out of it, would they trade him trying to get assets? I can't imagine you getting much. It'll be it's very interesting because all the dynamics of the baseball season, the building, the future, everything is is thrown out the window and we don't know how teams are going to react. And and I get a feeling and you're around the ballpark. Uh, the Mets are taking this as any other season. I wonder if that's the case across the other 29 teams. I wonder if there's a lot of GMs or owners who are saying, you know, whatever happens, happens. I just want to make sure I don't lose money. Uh, throw the team out there and 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 go ahead. I, I don't know if that's what I, I don't get that sense from Brody Van Wagen and the Mets. I don't either, and I think it's going to be interesting to see what extended rosters, whether teams that are out of it, maybe bring a prospect up a year earlier than they thought they would, just to give them a taste of that last month of the season. Maybe someone they even drafted this year. I mean, it's possible. I don't think it's likely for the Mets or the Yankees, but. If people are going to talk about the legitimacy of the season, I have a quick question. We're all New York fans. We all love the four major sports. The New Jersey Devils won the Stanley Cup the year after the Rangers won the Stanley Cup. And if we all remember, that was a shortened season because of a work stoppage. We remember because 
the Rangers didn't get to put their uh, bed sheet up in the rafters till January. That's when everything started. Is their title, the Devils, not legitimate? Is the San Antonio Spurs title not legitimate one year when they had a shortened season? The year the Knicks were the eighth seed and beat the Heat and ended up, you know, battling with them. I, I really think you have to kind of take a good, hard, long look at this and say to yourself, you know, it's a chance for teams to win. I think a team to watch in the American League is the Tampa, Ra- Tampa Bay Rays. Um, they had a successful year last year, and in a shorter window, they might have more of a chance of taking the division from the Yankees than if they had a 162-game platform. So there are teams that are going to have be, take advantage of it, and there are teams that are not going to take advantage of it. I think the Padres are a team to watch in the National League because all their young players might be able to get a 60-game run going on. Everyone knows it going in. We all know it's going to be different. And I don't think teams are generally going to change their whole strategy come the trading deadline because of the season they're in. I think it'll depend on where they are in the standings, where they believe they could be by the end of the season, and whether they're going to sign the players that maybe are going into a walk year like a Stroman. I think that'll all dictate just like it does in a normal trading deadline, only it's going to have to be done with a smaller sample size of information to base those decisions on. How is the ballpark, uh, Rich? It was something I was talking to Tim Healy recently and Kevin Kernan, and we talked about, and this was before uh, any you know media access was given, you know, sp- summer camp hadn't started. Uh, it's going to be different. It's clearly different. Uh, you see, I mean, it was funny. I was watching you know, some photos. Uh, uh, I think it was Justin Toscano of the record was putting some photos of an inter-squad game. It was on a Sunday morning, and I see the umpire behind the mound calling balls and strikes, and it reminded me of my old days playing sandlot ball in Brooklyn at St. Athanasius Field over in Bensoners, where there it is, a Sunday morning, a Saturday afternoon, or you know, a modest crowd of probably you know, friends and family, umpire behind uh, the mound. Uh, just you, the baseball, about the game. It was a weird, surreal feeling. It shows you how the basics of the game are about. Uh, are about. So how is it covering the, the team? Are you getting that same surreal feeling watching these inter-squad games where it's, it's truly no longer uh, entertainment? It's just the sport. That's the interesting part about it. The thing I think about when I watch these inter-squad games is, you know, all the church leagues I played in on Sunday afternoon after church and you chose up sides and you, you went at it. And one week you're on a team with your best friend and the next week your best friend's on the other team. Um, I do think the Mets are trying to have a lot of fun with it. And a lot of players have told us that um, now, just so you get a sense of what we have to go through when we cover a game. And it's not terrible. It's certainly workable. I've learned to do my job with a lot of obstacles, so uh, I'll do it. But you enter the ballpark, they take your temperature. I'll tell you how much the Mets have taken this to the umpteenth degree in terms of distancing. If you want to use the men's room, they give you a magnet you have to put on the door because they're only allowing one person in the bathroom per per time. So you leave, you finish in the bathroom, you come back, you take your magnet off, and if there's no magnet on the door, you know the bathroom's available. So that's how much the Mets have taken it. When players we've talked to on Zoom have really been impressed with how the Mets are doing it. You know, Brody Van Wagenen said to us, and, and again, 
We don't meet with any players face-to-face. It's all done on Zoom, even though we're in the same building. We don't see anybody, okay? But Rody Van Wagenen said, we tried to take it to the umpteenth degree, and we said to ourselves, if we could be six feet apart, can we be try to be eight feet apart? Can we try to be ten feet apart? Can we try to give us some cushion to that six-feet distance? And that's just an example of how the Mets have looked at this. And I haven't covered any other team's summer camp. I've only covered the Mets. But I've been impressed with how the Mets have handled it, how the Mets have done the seating in the press box. You know, there's a limit of 35, and we haven't had close to 35 people in many of the games I'm at. But they have assigned seats that not only do the Mets take into account the six-feet distance left to right, they're taking into account the six-feet distance between row to row. So they kind of jimmy-rig the seats so that if your seat's one and three in row one, Row and three is not available. One and three is not available in row two. Two and four is. And I think when and if they ever let fans into the ballpark, I think the Mets already have things in their mind on how they will do it based on in the small sample size of the press box how they're doing it. I'm very impressed. I hear the Mets brought in experts to kind of guide them along, along and how to do it. And the players are having some fun with it too. They have cones in the outfield. They leave them six feet apart when they're shagging flies. And when a player hits a home run, they all go crazy. When a player makes an error, they all ride them. It's very much like Port St. Lucie spring trainings, except we're in a pandemic and there's a lot of distance. We don't interact with any players individually. They're on Zoom calls. And you know, when I'm on these Zoom calls, I was thinking about this the other day, Mike, and I know you'll appreciate this because you're an aficionado of not sports, but entertainment as well. I guess the first Zoom TV program we ever saw was Hollywood Squares. We had the nine people oh, right yeah, on the screen. That's right. I, I saw and, that. That's funny. When I've done a Zoom, I, that was the, one of the jokes I made. And I was in uh, an environment where not everybody watched Hollywood Squares. There was some younger people. I don't think they got it. But I remember, you know, is Rich Catino the center square? That's the question. So, you know, that'll be. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think Rich Catino is ever the center square in that press box. But certainly I'm on the Zoom meetings. <laughs> You have to you have to flag your raise your hand on the Zoom so you can ask a question. You can't just blurt out a question. It's all done in an organized fashion. Technologically speaking, I'm still trying to figure out how to record the Zooms and how to cut them into sound bites for ESPN. So that's something I'll have to work on. And, and uh, another radio guy was saying to me, Rich, it'll be trial and error. I says, right now it's error and trial. But I think that you know we're going to get used to it and and. You know, one thing I always said to you, Mike, and, and, and we're close, we share a lot with each other, is I really, the best part about covering the game is the game. To me, it's not the pregame stuff. You know, and listen, I like talking to players. I like doing one-on-one interviews, which are gone right now. You can't really do any. But to me, that three hours where you're watching a baseball game, when it forces your mind to think about, okay, is that runner going to be stealing now? Is it a hit and run? And the other thing I was thinking about, and the Mets did a whole kind of um, look like during the inter-squad game, they were trying to use ex- the extra inning scenario and test it. Now, right. is t- our team's going to have, forget about designated hitter, are you going to have a designated runner? The guy that will be the pinch runner in extra innings when you're sitting on second base. Now, when you're the visiting team in a tie game, do you play for that one run and bun them over, or do you look for a bigger inning? Obviously, the home team has an advantage because in their half, they're going to know what they have to do, how many runs they're going to have to score 
to win the game. But it'll be interesting to see how managers do that. And remember, not only do you have to, you know, this extra inning rule, but you have the three batter pitcher rule too. That's kind of all intertwined in this. And I think it's going to be interesting to see strategically how teams handle this when they go into their first couple of extra inning games. And I think it's going to be real interesting. So there's drills like that that you see that you try to get some interest on. The other thing is we're up in the press box. So we can see everything, but you're not – in Port St. Louis, you'd be sitting in one of the dugouts watching Jacob DeGrom pitch in a squad game. You weren't up hundreds of feet away. So you try to see things. You try to look at things. The, the one thing I will tell you about the Mets that I noticed, the one player that I noticed that to me is in a different realm than I've ever seen in Stephen Matz. Um, Matz's inter-squad games, he's been outstanding. And – I, I'm thankful that he's finally rediscovered the curveball, which he needs to throw consistently a certain percentage of the time. And if I was going to pick a player on the Mets that's going to shock people and not only have a good year but have a great year, I'm going to tell you it's Steven Matz. That's the one I think is going to – and I think by the end of the year, he will be the number two starter in the rotation behind Jacob deGrom, similar to what Noah Syndergaard was. Um I think that Cespedes has looked good at the plate, is running, and the outfield still has to be ascertained, the stopping and starting. Jed Lowry has looked good at the plate, but not terribly good running. So that's something to watch as well. But I think that, you know, the Met pitchers have looked very good. DeGrom looked good. Matt's looked good. In fact, DeGrom said about Matt's that he thought it was the best he's ever seen him look. And I would think Jacob DeGrom has a better pitching eye than I do. So, I think that's a great, you know, teammate, you know, saying it. The other thing about Cespedes is, and if he can play any outfield at all, it helps the Mets because then that DH spot could be given to Dominic Smith, J.D. Davis, a whole host of others. But also the DH may allow the Mets to play Marisnik more in the outfield, which really improves their outfield defense. And keep in mind this, Mike, they have two pitchers newly acquired, in both Waka and Rick Porcello, and they're pitch-to-contact pitchers. So the infield defense is going to be real important, okay? Rosario has to continue his development. Pete Alonso turned out to be a much better defensive first baseman than I thought he would be. Second base could be a position to watch. If Cano isn't ready, then who knows? Then maybe you put McNeil second and J.D. Davis at third, and you either D.H. Cespedes or you D.H. Dominic Smith. They have a lot of options offensively, and I will say this about the men offense. Mike, I know we're not in a 162-game season, so you can't compare stats from year to year. This lineup has a chance to be one of the best lineups in team history and score a lot of runs. And I think, I think the experts in baseball understand it, but I have a feeling when we get into the teeth of the season, people around baseball are going to be pretty shocked on how just volatile and how explosive this Met lineup can be. I mean, I was thinking about this, and I say to myself, I say, okay, you got McNeil and Memo at the top of the order. Then you got Alonzo. Then you got, you know, obviously Conforto and Assessment's DH. And then I was saying to myself, oh, my God, I forgot about Wilson Ramos, who only led the National League in RBIs by a catcher last year. I forgot J.D. Davis. I didn't even think of him at Rosario. Like, you think about all this stuff, and it's a lineup that um, – one of the things when I covered – the Bobby Valentine team. Mike Piazza always used to say this, and I learned a lot. He said, 
the toughest thing about pitching to a lineup that's deep, it's harder to pitch to a lineup that's deep than a lineup that may have two megastars of the game in the middle of it because you have to navigate through an entire lineup. It isn't just pitching around a guy or two and then maybe trying to wiggle out of that inning. And I think it's going to be constant pressure on the Met opponents to get through this lineup on a day-in and day-out basis. And that's why I think, Mike, it's got a chance to be the best the best offensive Met team in team history. And I know the Mets have been a team organization built on pitching, but the mid-'80s had some great offensive teams, and Bobby Valentine's teams had some great offensive teams. But this one is deeper than any Met team I think I've ever seen, and it'll be interesting to see how that evolves come when the season starts. Yeah, that just reminds me. I think I've looked at this before. I think the 87 team and the 99 team are like one of the two top offensive teams in history. You know, you you also mentioned, I'm not surprised to hear, actually he gets underappreciated and forgotten. I'm not surprised to hear that Steven Matz, you know, he's lefty. He's still very young, uh, is emerging. I have a buddy who's uh, in minor league baseball told me a few years ago that uh, a scout that he trusts saw him pitch when he was in the Pacific Coast League with Vegas and thought he was the best uh, pitcher he saw in the PCL in 20 years at that point. Remember, that's when Syndergaard had come through, too, mm-hmm. so I'm not surprised. The other guy that I think we've overlooked in the 2019 end-of-the-year run, myself included, because of the year that Alonzo had, because of the year McNeil had, because uh, when Nimmo came back, he, he had such a great impact at a lead-off spot. I think J.D. Davis was an, an elite top 10, top 15 offensive player as you got into the summer last year. The guy that we don't talk about as much is Ahmed Rosario. Now, Rosario has taken his lumps. His instincts sometimes come into question. Makes me nervous defensively, although he improved. But when you start to look at advanced metrics, runs creation, wins above replacement, in the second half of last year, he's a top 10 shortstop. He's ahead of Corey Sager. He's ahead of Gleyber Torres, who, you know, this was actually considered sacrilegious when I put this out on Twitter. How could you say He's better than Gleyber Torres. Well, he was a better-rated prospect than Torres coming up through the minor league system. I, I know the second half is just a sample size. I know that you could throw advanced stats at me by saying, well, the guy's batting average on balls in play was 360. That's not sustainable. Realistically, that's going to come down into, you know, at least into the 330, 320 range and, and maybe impact the results. But he showed improvement. That's the important thing at a premium position. He's got Andres Jimenez pushing him behind him. We'll see what that's all about. He's got a manager, a young manager who's more of a contemporary, a Latino manager. Maybe that will help. Um, I'm curious. I think this is a 60 games. Forget about the legitimacy. It's an important 60 games for Ahmed Rosario because it might determine going into next year, is he the shortstop of the future or will they use him to upgrade the team somewhere else and maybe go with Jimenez or somewhere along those lines? I agree with you. And in the DH world, I'm thinking – at least initially, they're going to bat him ninth. And remember, he had a lot of success batting eighth last year. And when you think he was batting in front of the pitcher, that's interesting. And think about the lineup when it spins around. You got Rosario, who can get on base, and then you got Nimmo and McNeil, you know, those three prepping for the big power bats. Um, I also think his defense improved immeasurably last year in the second half. And I think that's important, too, particularly if the Mets have a couple of ground ball pitchers in their starting rotation now. Um, I agree with you, Rosario's almost forgotten. But I think the guy in this line that's really forgotten is Michael Conforto. Um, and rightfully so, people mentioned McNeil and Alonzo. They were all stars. So 
people mention even Ramos, people mention J.D. Davis for the year he had, which is certainly, it's all appropriate. But Michael Conforto had 30 homers last year. How many major league players had 30 homers last year? It was a handful of players. And Conforto, I will also say this about him. You know, we've all talked about the leadership of Pete Alonso and how he's shown it, and it's it's certainly true being around Pete. I can tell you, being around Pete, I've kind of thought about how I can be a better teammate at ESPN. So he's helped me, too. But um, I think Conforto is a big leader in that locker room. And when I see Michael Conforto, I think a lot of David Wright. I, I really do. Not so much in his playing ability on the field, but the way he cares about his teammates, the way he spends time in all corners of that clubhouse. So I think Conforto is another guy, you know, you know, people say, well, when's he going to have a – I actually heard someone on the air say, when's Conforto going to have a good year when he hit 30 homers last year? So I think it's interesting when, you know, you have opinions about players. It's more interesting when you can't read the back of his baseball card correctly. But I do think that he is forgotten in a lot of ways, and he's going to be in the middle of this lineup, and he's probably going to be hitting around, maybe even between – Alonzo and Cespedes, so you know he's going to see pitches, and I look for Conforto to have a big year as well, but you are right. It is an important year for Rosario because Jimenez is knocking on the door. I don't think he's ready yet, but I think he's a good 12 months away, and sometimes we forget this about Ahmed Rosario. There was a point in his career where he was the number one prospect in all of baseball, not on the Mets, not in the National League, not in the NL East, in baseball, and I sometimes think we forget that how much talent he has. Now, talent is you got to put it together, and he has worked hard. He has gotten better, but I agree with you totally, Mike. This sixty-game season is a big sixty-game plateau for Rosario, um, considering what's behind him in the organization. You worried about Pete Alonso's weight? There's been some uh, eyebrows raised. There was a picture out there. And let me just caution people. I saw pictures of Derek Jeter. I remember they had him on the cover, I think, of the post where his shirt was blousing and it looked like he was a little heavier than he is. But there was a not-so-flattering picture of Alonso uh, over the weekend. And, uh, you know, there's always the sophomore jinx you worry about. Alonso exceeded every expectation. It might be a season that he'll never repeat offensively. That doesn't mean he'll not have a good career. It doesn't mean he won't have – good seasons, but 53 home runs is asking a lot. Are you worried about Alonzo? Is there a weight issue there? Do you think the, the stop and go? I mean, we all know his attitude is great. We all know he's working on his defense, but his bread and butter is the bat. His bread and butter is the power. Uh, anything to the concerns where we saw a very portly uh, Alonzo, or are we just looking at a picture in the wrong way? You know, pictures could be taken from certain angles and who knows? The Alonzo I see in the inter-squad games is still hitting the ball over the fence against some pretty good pitchers. He's also hitting that ball to right center, which he got very good at in the second half of last year. Do I believe in sophomore jinxes? I, I think sophomore jinxes exist. Um, but I think it's how you, you know, how you react to the sophomore year. If you get off to a poor start, this is a game, Mike, as you know, about adapting. And I think one thing we saw with Alonzo last year is that when they were getting him out after the all-star break, he had a little bit of a area right after the all-star break where he slumped a little bit. 
And he was kind of sending after those curveballs in the dirt, which I think affects all power hitters, not just Pete Alonso. But what he did is he worked on his pitch selection. So when it's 0-2, he didn't swing so much in that. And then in August and September, mid-August to the end of the season, he, he looked like the Pete Alonso swing that we'd seen in the first half of the season. This is a game of adjustments, and he's going to have to make adjustments because people are going to make adjustments to him, just like people are going to make adjustments to Juan Soto, okay? And, you know, people are going to make adjustments to every player that has a big season. And I think that, you know, Ballinger's going to have adjustments in his game in a Dodger uniform. So there are a lot of things that you're going to have to do. In a 60-game season, though, you're going to have to make the readjustments probably quicker than you would in the 162-game season. I do think Alonzo is capable of doing that. And um, the extra weight that you may have seen in that picture, I guess what that means to me is the 380-foot home is going to be a 440-foot home right now. That, to me, is the difference in in weight. I'm not concerned at all what his work ethic or anything like that. I think, you know, you got to remember we're an intra squad and these media types, they got to find anything they could write about. And we see it in spring training year after year. And um, one of the, one of my favorite scouts always says to me, try not to buy, Rich, what you see in March or what you see in September. And I think, you know, yeah. that may be a work here with the Alonzo photo. Rich, uh, before we wrap up here, I'd be remiss. So um, there's going to be a new ownership group. Uh, and there's always this talk about almost like Brody's keeping the seat warm for somebody else, Brody Van Wagen and the GM. Uh, but this week, for the first time, or late last week, Andy Martino of SNY really was the first mainstream writer to acknowledge that he thought Brody was doing a good job. There's always a but with Brody Van Wagenen. Well, he's an agent. You know, how is this going to work out? Meanwhile, now other teams, the Knicks, are copying this model that the Mets brought in. Uh, they don't give him credit for you know being a player's first GM and, and going with Alonzo. And not worrying about the service time, how he's been able to recruit guys like Dylan Batances, how he's been able to work with Scott Boris, something that they thought he couldn't do during the draft and, and, and roll the dice with some high-end talent in the last two drafts. What they're giving him credit for now is, is basically what you talked about earlier is how he's embraced under his leadership the need to show people that the Mets are serious about keeping the players safe, whether it's – and I believe some of this is window dressing. I do. I don't think it matters if you're eight feet, 10 feet, six feet. I think once you're there, you're there. But if that's what's going to make people feel better, then he's living up to his player's first credo. So he's finally getting some credit from the media for not what he really should be getting credit for, which is he's doing a pretty good job building an organization and thinking out of the box and bringing some energy to this organization that was lacking under Sandy Alderson, but because of how he's handling the pandemic, which is odd because that's where politics and the real world are now intersecting with sports. But I think it'd be foolish to buy into this narrative that whether it's A-Rod, Steve Cohen, the guys down in Philly, whoever buy this team, if they're a good businessman, businesswoman, if it's A-Rod and J-Lo, they didn't get to where they got by just going in and raising and rebuilding things because they want their people. They would at least give this a chance to evaluate and assess. And I think they'll be surprised about how effective Brody Van Wagen has been as general manager of the match and how confident he is, and at least he's talking confident, 
that not only does he believe he's the right guy, that he's going to be around a little bit more than just the next few months while the Will Pounds run, the, run out the clock. So before I let you go, I was curious your thoughts on, on that. I think Brody's done has, – has he made mistakes? Sure he has. Okay. But I got news for people that, you know, are critical of Brody. This is a world filled with mistakes. It's how you bounce back from the mistakes. The two drafts he had has been outstanding. He's thought out of the box when he's needed to in those drafts and gotten players that, you know, if gotten players that, you know, maybe coming off Tommy John surgery or maybe he had to go push the envelope a little bit to get certain players, and he did that. Um, you and I have talked so much about the Cano trade and that everyone's like this and that. First of all, the resume on Edwin Diaz is not finished yet as a Met. Okay. But secondly, what people fail to recognize in that trade was the getting rid of the contracts of G. Bruce and Anthony Swarzak gave him the money that probably allowed him to sign Wilson Ramos and Justin Wilson. Both of those players were significant big check mark free agents that perform well for the Mets. Like you said, the stuff with Alonzo, where he wasn't worried about the service time issue. And he had told him if he earned a spot on opening, he'd be there on opening day, and he was. Um, so I do think he's done a good job. Now, my thing is, whoever comes in and owns this team, if people think they're going to come in and just, you know, upset the, the, the Fay table and make tons of changes right away, then they don't understand how sports is run. I think Van Wagenen has done a good job with the Mets. You know, let's not forget, Mike, they had a, a double-digit increase in wins from one year to the next. I can't just dismiss that and say Brody Van Wagenen had nothing to do with that, okay? Now, you know, definitely he's pulled in a more free agents this year, and Dellen Batantis being the big one, you know, that's pulling in. So. Also, Purcello and Waka. Let's see how that all works out. But I do know this, that last year the media was out to get Mickey Calloway and they got him. I don't know for sure yet if they're out to get Brody Van Wagen in, although I have my thoughts about that. But I think Brody has a much you know, better foundation to stand on than Mickey had. And... I also think that, you know, this team is on the upswing, both not only from, you know, a major league level, but the farm system is much better than it was two years ago. And he and he traded some top prospects along the way. He understood that Zach Wheeler wasn't going to re-sign and get big money, and he went out and got Marcus Stroman, knowing that he was going to have to fill a spot in that rotation. He went out and got pitching depth. He understood where the starting rotation marketplace was going way before most general managers did. He went out and got Stroman knowing that Wheeler's market value would be high and it wasn't in the Met budget to pay. So there's a lot of things he's done that are real positive. This is a team on the upswing. This is a team that had a great second half last year and got back in the race a little bit. I'm, I don't, you know, listen, I mean, a game or two goes different here or there. The Mets might have been the wild card team and not the Nationals. So I do think that he's done a good job, but I know how the media works in this town. When they decide they have the target on someone's back, 
they're going to keep throwing bows and arrows till that, that target is down on the ground. I think they'll be surprised, though, because Brody's much stronger than that. He's much stronger willed than that. I've gotten to know him over the last two years, and he cares about people. He also gets in a room with the people that work with him, like all mom and I, and it isn't just, okay, what do you think? He really wants to know what they think. And sometimes they don't think exactly what he thinks is the right way to go. But he takes that information and he utilizes it in the best fashion. He never dismisses it. He always considers it. And to me, in any business, when you have a, a, a manager or someone that you know a lot of people work for, that's what you want. You want the listening skills so that you feel the door is always open. Even if they don't go with what you said this time, you know the door is open and you know he listens to you and you don't see evaluated it. So I think there's a lot of things that he's done that are very good. Um, if I had to give him a grade as general manager, I'd give him a B plus. I know there are a lot of people that wouldn't. I know there are a lot of my beat writers that would give him an F or a C or a D. And I hear it. I hear when he's walking around down the interest squad games, the comments, you hear them. But to me, Brody has brought something to this organization. And I'll give you this other one before I leave about Brody. Brody worked it out with Joanna Cespedes' contract. Okay? And I'll tell you why he worked it out. Because he had to work it out. And he had to also interact with the Players Association to work it out. And we all know he's an old agent, so he had a good relationship with the Players Association. And I look across town, and the Yankees weren't having been able to do that with Jacoby Ellsbury, which might be one of the worst baseball contracts ever signed. Okay? Now, reverse it for a minute. Let's say the Yankees made the deal with Ellsbury, Mike, and the Mets were still sitting with the Cespedes situation. How do you think it would have been covered in this town? Oh, and much differently. much differently. And it's not covered that way. Brody gets no credit for the Cespedes contract revisions. And listen, Ioannis deserves some credit, too, for understanding the situation. But the way that was covered was big deal. And I think it was a very big deal because now you have an incentive-laden season for a guy that's in his walk year to free agency. And conceptually, that makes sense to me that, you know, we all know what Cespedes has done in his walk years. Just go back to the two walk years with the Mets and how he performed. My point of the whole thing is Brody does those things and I give him credit for it. And I think if you're a writer or beat reporter or TV or radio host, and you're looking at it to create the final movement of Brody, you're not looking at it correctly. Has he made mistakes? Yes. Is he going to make more mistakes? Of course. Perfections for the next world we live in, Mike, not this one. And I do think this, though. I talk to other people and other organizations I'm talking about other general managers, and they have a lot of respect for Brody. So in his circle of interaction, he has a level of respect. In his circle of players, he has a level of respect. In his circle of the organizations, he has a level of respect. In the commissioner's office, he has a level of respect. So he has a level of respect in all those areas. I'm going to kind of dismiss the one area where he might not have the level of respect. And... Go from there. I, You know me well enough, Mike. I judge people on how they interact with me, not how I'm told they interact with others. And I can tell you this, from a media standpoint, 
Last year, every time I called Brody, he called me right back. And sometimes he couldn't answer the question that I had for him, but he was very, very honest about that. And he never skirted the issue. He never hid behind anything. And I can't say that from every general manager I worked with covering the Mets in my history. So and that's, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. I think he did a good job last year. And I think he has this organization and this team on the road to success. And that success could happen in the 60-game season. It wouldn't shock me. Rich, always a pleasure catching up with you. I'm glad baseball's back. I'm glad you're doing well. Uh, let's catch up again. I'm sure there'll be a lot to talk about, even though it's a short 60 games and 66 days, you could jam pack a lot of stuff into that. So be well and let's do this again, my friend. You got it, Mike. Stay well, my friend. Tino, 987 ESPN, com. He's doing some work over there. You usually could catch Rich on Larry Hardesty's show over at uh, 987 ESPN. Continues to do good work covering the Mets over there and uh, always appreciate his perspective and him coming on the show. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll wrap up. Final thoughts. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. We pull no punches with opinions on the Talking Mets podcast, like when Kevin Kernan of the New York Post, also known as America's most beloved sports writer, told us why Brody Van Wagenen and the Mets appreciate his style of reporting. I personally, AMBS is tired of the whining and he's not dealing with it anymore. When they need to be crushed, it's like Brody told me the other day. He goes, uh, you know, it's nice that, you know, we appreciate the fact that you're, you're being honest and fair with us. But I also know that if you need to let us have it, you will. Because I remember that day in Miami where you crushed me. And that's the truth. I just write what's really happening. I don't have an agenda. I pay it all. And uh, in spring training, you got to give them a chance. I, I mean, if you look at the lineup, it looks okay. It looks okay. And we all know they got a double-side young winner in uh, DeGrom. And maybe Syndergaard gets his act together. Edwin Diaz, of course, is the key. And I, I dealt with him the other day, spoke to him. Told me he's not afraid of New York, which I thought was interesting, and he seems to have a he's, he's really got a good attitude. He's accountable. We'll see if um, they tweak some things with Hefner and maybe get. Uh, he needs to knock guys off the plate. It's really that simple. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. Uh, great segment there by Rich Catino. And uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, I, I meant to say in the opening a couple of things. I was looking at some stuff during the break uh, as far as Mets offensive teams in their history. Also, I, I meant to say how many memories it brings back looking at those clips, as I was telling Rich, of these inter-squad games on a Sunday morning with the umpire behind second base. And what's really cool about the sport so far is that all the noise, other than the coronavirus nonsense and the and the silly shaming if everybody's, you know, less than six feet apart and policing and all the the prefacing of the virus that really drives me bananas. Other than that, it really has been strictly about the game and about the team. And and maybe because it's gonna be so hard for the media to get access to players, the usual uh you know, nonsense that comes out, especially the the controversy that you have to drum up sometimes during a 162-game season. Maybe the one positive over this sprint is that you're just going to focus on the game, hopefully. And the only distraction, the only nonsense that we've thrown at us is the actual virus. And, you know, uh, from my opinion, 
media on both the sports professional level for some reason rooting for this virus to overtake the country and to it to, to always make everything look worse than it is it's just a mind-boggling thing why you'd want to destroy your country destroy your sport over a virus i don't get it i don't know what anybody would get out of it but uh that's another story for another podcast and you probably already annoyed some of you that i brought that up but um so it's pretty cool to see that because it brings memories back of the innocence of just playing baseball when it well this other garbage didn't matter. It's about the game, and I think the players will enjoy that. The players will enjoy where it's just about the game. They could go about their craft. Sure, there's an empty stadium, and this team particularly, I had a scout tell me that, you know, they they felt that the Mets might be impacted a little negatively because they were a close knit team that that fed off the energy of the crowd, and they don't have that. And uh, that's something they will miss. But um, it'll be interesting to see how a crowdless stadium, does that normalize home field, you know, other than the bottom of the ninth, which baseball, in theory, the only home field advantage, it's actually the one sport where there is a home field advantage, is the bottom of the ninth. So you can just walk it off. NBA, NHL, NFL to a lesser extent, all those home fields are more crowd-centric than it is anything to do with an advantage with the game itself. So that'll be interesting on that. As far as offensive teams, I looked this up real quick. I thought this would be interesting. In the history of the Mets, the best offensive team, and this is not anything other than a quick rudimentary runs, the old just scoring runs. The best offensive team in Mets history is the 99 team, followed by 2006, followed by 87, followed by 2000. And then 2007 would be number five. Um, can this team, you know, and I don't know how many runs that averages out to. It's probably about five runs a game, the 99 Mets. Can this team be up there? Well, they were hugging, uh, you know, five runs a game in the second half last year. In this day and age, uh, you know, you have to at least score four and a half runs a game. That's probably on the low end. That's probably league average-ish uh, to be considered, a, you know, an average offensive team. I think if you score five runs a game with this pitcher, you should be fine. But the funny part is the 2017 Mets, who offensively are among the top you know, 15 in Mets history, uh, were awful the 2017 Mets because their pitching was, other than the 62 Mets, this is interesting, just by the 19, the 2017 Mets had, give, had given up the most runs in the history other than the 62 Mets in a single season. 96 came, uh, and then that was the 96 team, that pitching staff, those young pitchers got uh, clobbered. But you're talking about worse pitching that team other than 62 than the Mets in the 64 season the 63 season the 66 season uh, 93 worst team money can buy amazing what you could you know get on baseball reference and what have you so interesting uh interesting little fact there hey one last thing I want to give a quick welcome and shout out to a new listener uh, I'm not going to give you his name but it's uh, Bruce from Connecticut now Bruce uh Yonkers guy so he's a New Yorker like us Apparently walked away from sports for almost 50 years and wants to get back into it. You know, life gets in the way sometimes and a big sports fan as a kid, uh, you know, decided to get back in. Sent me a note using this podcast as a springboard back into a sports fandom. What's wrong with you, Bruce? Why would you use me? You know, I'm just joking. Uh, Well, first, welcome. I hope you enjoy this. I hope uh, you stay around. Uh, I hope you invite some more friends as well because we could use as many new friends. Friends to the show as possible. I apologize if I offend you with anything. I know in the last few weeks and months, because of this uh, situation in the world, sometimes politics and sports intercede, and you could always get yourself in trouble with even the most innocuous comment. But anyway, um, 
I hope that you stick around. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy your foray back into Mets baseball. A lot has happened in 48 years since maybe you were a big fan. Uh, hard to get up on that history in just an hour podcast. But uh, there's definitely baseball reference. There's definitely old podcasts that you can look back to. And, um, you know, keep keep uh, keep reaching out, Bruce. And uh, I appreciate you listening and reaching out. And I'll send you a note. And I'll say thank you uh, as well offline. So I just wanted to give that little shout-out. I thought that was pretty cool, getting somebody that is looking to get back into Mets baseball, a big Mets fan from their youth, and is using this podcast as one of their tools to do that. That's humbling, and I really appreciate it. And as always, I always appreciate all of you listening, whether you agree, disagree, like me, dislike me. My main goal is to give you something to think about, whether you like what I say or don't like what I say, something to think about over the hour, to go back and churn those thoughts give you some mental bubble gum, take you away from the craziness of what real life has become for about an hour or so, and then have some fun. And, and whether you uh, come from any background or political affiliation or whatever, I appreciate you listening. I enjoy you being part of this program, and uh, I want you to come back, and I want you to interact, and I want you to keep sending me your thoughts and opinions at MikeSilvaTalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, MikeSilvaTalkingMetsPodcast.com. Of course, you can check out the show all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. You can send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And as you know, you can get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm Mike Silva. I'm your host. Enjoy the rest of your week. Finally, some baseball to talk about coming this weekend. Season's just 10 days away or so. 2020 is upon us. Finally. Till next time, be well, everybody. You sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. 
you made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.